this week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Ziak and Tim Minichi. Jay, uh, we haven't talked about this, I don't think. Uh, are you a fan of Portlandia? Uh, I like it in little snippets here and there. Okay. Um, I've tried to watch the show, and usually I feel lost. <laughs> I don't understand sometimes what's going on. So Sure. Did you catch the most recent episode with Glenn Danzig? Uh, no. The last one I watched was... Uh, the Austin episode. Okay. Well, this is the one that's right after that. And then we're going to get into what our... I, I just watched it, and I, I want to bring this up just because uh, there there's a, a running joke on the show about a band that does the theme songs for premium cable shows. So it's a band that is, consists of like a slide guitar player and an upright bass player and a guy who kind of sings in like a like a... A gruff vocal and he's like i did the vocal i did the uh the, the song for justified and right. <laughs> and uh true blood and yeah. true detective and all the hbo shows all the hbo shows yeah. and all these other shows and, and i was like wow all those shows do have the same basic yeah. sound for all of their intros music noir yeah <laughs> so anyway good show funny uh a lot of bands that we've talked about have actually ended up on that show, like Flaming Lips and Dinosaur Jr. and Wilco and, uh, you know, stuff that's come up over the years. So just wanted to mention that at the top. Jay, we have a requested review this week. Requested, requested review. Yes, we do. Yes. And to help us dig into this record, we invited the Suggestor to come on. He is a... Uh, a gentleman who plays in a band that everybody should check out. They're called Braided Veins. You can Google that and find the music um, in various locations like uh, Spotify and think like Bandcamp maybe, perhaps. Uh, his name is Brandon Trammell. Brandon, what part of Michigan are you in? Uh, I'm just outside of Flint, um, kind of in the burbs of Flint and the burbs of Detroit. Oh, okay. So what's the water situation where you guys are at? Uh, it is a nightmare, essentially. Okay. <laughs> um, where I live in, in Fenton, we don't, we have, uh, Detroit's water, which most of Southeast Michigan has. Okay. Um, it's just the city proper of Flint that has the issue going on. Right. But it's, that's where I'm from. I kind of consider myself a, a Flint guy. I've lived there my whole life. So, um, yeah, it's pretty weird to be, uh, Flint gets a lot of attention in the in the national media. Usually, it's really negative, and this time to have like a lot of support is really odd. Um, right, kind of nice, I guess. Like, there's a lot of celebrities that just show up and hand out water, um, and it seems really cool to to get all the support that we're getting. Um, but as far as the the situation of people in Flint, it's it's a mess. It's it's bad. It's not going to get better anytime soon. Wow. Well, welcome to the show. <laughs> 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 uh so, so i mentioned that uh you're currently playing a band called braided vase previously before that you played in kid brother collective which people might be familiar with um i it was one of those bands where i'd heard the name and i probably had like listened to it randomly here or there and then i went on to spotify and listened to an album that was on there and i was like oh okay this sounds like really familiar and this was what when were you in playing in kin, kid brother collective um kid brother collective started in uh 97 uh we went until 03 uh and then we just reformed about a year and a half ago to put out uh one of our albums on vinyl and we've kind of played a few shows here and there since then cool and the album that you suggested for us is summer camp and they're, they only have essentially one record. I know that there was like a, an album that they released under a different name and then it got kind of re-released, but some songs were taken off and some songs were put on and it was released as Pure Juice. Um, why'd you pick this record? Well, I had a whole list that I've, I've wanted to do this for a while with you guys. And uh, a lot of them, frankly, were records that I loved and that seemed kind of like cheating to me. 
Um, plus, I, I figured you guys probably already knew most of those anyway. This record really felt like one of those, you pull it out and you haven't heard it since it was first out, and then it's kind of like a, a little bit of a jolt. Like, oh, mm. this is might be worth looking into. So um, I remember that they were like one of those buzz bands for a second. Mm-hmm. A buzz clip. So, um, And their style, I think at the time, commercially wasn't really doing much. Um, so I, I don't know. It just felt like a good like fell through the cracks kind of record that, that works for what it is you guys do. Yeah, absolutely. I think this was one that I had probably seen the, um, the album cover in the past couple years and been like, Oh yeah, we got to go back to that record. And cause I remember, like you said, it was like a buzz bin. I think, uh, one song, you know, was probably on some comps that came out through like CMJ and we probably played this, the lead single, whatever that was at the radio station we were at. And then I didn't really remember anything else about the record. Um, so Jay, did you, were you familiar at all with this record? Uh, it was, it, I think, along the lines of what you guys are saying. When when I saw we were reviewing it, and I saw the album cover, it just like the light went on. Um, I'm remembering one of the songs for sure. I think it was maybe Drawer. Uh, uh, there's mm-hmm. one, there, <clears throat> there's a couple moments on the record where I'm like, I've heard this before. Um, I definitely remember the band name. I remember the album cover. I remember it kind of coming out and. Uh, Maybe because it was on Maverick, I don't know, but uh, yeah, yeah, it was one of those where uh, I definitely remember it once I saw it. But uh, yeah, it was t- total light going on. Our second consecutive Maverick band. <laughs> oh yeah, true. <laughs> um, so let's give a little history of of Summer Camp real quick, since there's only one record that's it's going to be quick. So they were originally from Santa Barbara, California, which is also known as the place I'm planning on retiring to. Uh, the members of the band were. Tim Cullen, uh, lead vocals and guitar. Son McHugh, lead vocals and guitar. Misha Feldman on bass. Tony Sevener on drums. And uh, Rami Antoon on drums. Um, I think they had a changeover in personnel at some point. Um, not sure exactly when, because honestly the info is a little bit uh, spotty. In terms of uh, when exactly what happened, but um, they they formed in high school, as uh, so many bands do, um, and they were originally called Old Man. Was the first incarnation of the band, and they nice. put out a self-titled album. That they recorded themselves on a Tascam uh, eight-track machine in Sean's home. Uh, a lot of the songs that were on this original album were ended up on the Summer Camp Pure Juice record, and then some of them that didn't uh, ended up on a compilation and some other stuff later on. So this turns into uh, them getting signed to Maverick. They go on tour. They hit Europe and Japan and the U.S., and they do Lollapalooza in 97, uh, Fuji Rock Festival, you name it. They're thrown onto tours with Failure, Poster Children, Tonic, Toad the Wet Sprocket, who also happened to be from Santa Barbara. And um, they get a song out of the, bas- the Basketball soundtrack, if you remember <laughs> that. Um, and uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. How did that soundtrack not come up on our soundtrack roundtable? I know. It had a lot of stuff on it, too. <laughs> basketball basketball yeah (laughs) so uh the album comes out uh in uh june of 97 perfect summer album and nothing happens and uh from there uh we get a lot of uh, information on solo records tim cullen put out a solo album in 2004 uh, Sean McHugh put out solo album in 2006, um, and then he put out an album as Sean and Michelle in 2009. I don't know who Michelle is, but uh, there you go. That's the history of of Summer Camp. Uh, if anybody has any, you know, additional info, or if anybody from the band wants to chime in on the specifics, feel free to go ahead and, and do so uh, on our uh, website or. We found that YouTube, people like to leave comments on YouTube from bands. Oh. 
YouTube. That's going to be a thing, I guess. Huh? I, I guess people are going to want to pay attention to that. <laughs> um, and then uh, I've got to mention that uh, if you want to find out about what we're going to be reviewing ahead of time, Patreon is the place to be. Uh, go to patreon.com backslash dig me out. For as little as a dollar a month, you can support the podcast and you get advanced info on what we're going to review. You can help us pick records by voting on uh, certain bands. And then also you get uh, advanced clips of upcoming interviews and then uh, bonus clips for stuff that we don't uh, uh, release with the uh, regular interviews, like uh, extra clips, B-sides, if you will. But uh, Steve Musinski, he had some comments for this. And uh, I think you had a little back and forth with him, Jay about this record but he said if i've learned anything since i started listening to dig me out is that i'm a fan of power pop a subgenre title that has somehow eluded me until now despite being a big super drag fan in the late 90s anyway i feel like summer camp falls into that same niche this album had my attention immediately and kept it largely throughout like so many albums from the 90s i think this record could have been trimmed down by two or three songs regardless it's on my radar now and I hope to see it sitting on my CD shelf soon. And then he chimed in a little bit later. After listening to this again, I feel inclined to add that it's a dust. It's dusty gems like these that keep me listening to the podcast. Excellent pick. Well, we have Brandon to thank for this <laughs> excellent pick. So uh, Steve is quite happy that you uh, dusted this one off. By the way, you can pick this up on Discogs. Uh, I, I went and looked for it. For anywhere from about a dollar five to forty four dollars, so there's a there's a big range okay. on what you want to pay for this record. <laughs> for on CD, we're not even talking about vinyl, just CD. Anyway, let's get into this album, gentlemen. Uh, we like to do uh, one of two ways here. We like to either do a uh, one thing we like about the record and then one thing we don't or we like to do this as let's go track by track i'm gonna put it to a vote you guys want to go track by track or do you want to do one thing you like one thing you don't like jay uh i can go track by track that's brandon fine. you want to go track by track that's fine by me i can go either way too let's go track by track ding ding we're going track by track spend a couple minutes on each song let's start out with the lead track drawer which was the single for this um album not in japan should i walk away was the japan single went to the top 10 but drawer is the first single um first impression jay like you i i thought this sounded familiar uh there was something about the the driving like halftime beat that was right yeah that swing beat thing going on and um, super melodic, uh, sets up the record well. Um, you're going to get this sort of power pop vocal approach, but with a, a range of musical, uh, you know, variety. It's not all going to be three chords and a cloud of dust sort of thing. Um, so I thought this was a solid opening track. Jay? Yeah, it, it reminded me uh, at first of maybe designed for life. Um, hmm. Just and that's the big six, eight uh, chords and just real thick. And, um, but then when the vocal comes in, you're, you know, you quickly realize, okay, this is going to be, um, you know, a power pop style, you know, vocal approach and lots of melodies. Um, so I, I think it's a, it's a good start to the record. It's it's one of my favorites. I don't know if it's the, I don't know it's the one I would have picked for a single, but um, I think it's a good album starter. Brandon, in revisiting this record, how how recently had you listened to this before suggesting it? Was it had it been a while, or was it something you listened to often? Uh, no, it wasn't. It wasn't one of those that, that got pulled out a lot. Uh, I probably listened to it. I'd say like every three years or so, and. Um, Really, what it what it, what made me choose it was the second track, "Nowhere Near," just is constantly in my head, and it always has been since that record came out. Interesting. Um, 
and for some reason I just didn't I never really went back and listened that song the hook just grabbed me um and that that's really the, the main reason though so well in getting to that second song nowhere near when I heard that I was like okay I, I know where this band is going now uh and it kind of reminded me Jay of um a few bands that we had listened to you know previously over the years like the stereo was a band that came to mind and uh what was it silver sun mm-hmm. was that really incredibly poppy band from the uk that we listened to a couple years ago i think that was a request review and um you know this is a perfect example of the the verses and the choruses are equally as hooky you know, yeah. which makes which is really one of the defining things I think when it comes to power pop, is that you can't like phone in the cor- the verse. Yeah. It has to be as as melodic as sometimes the chorus. Sometimes it's more melodic. Yeah, many times. Uh, actually, with this band, I think it, that might be the case for me. Is a lot of these verses are where the hook is. Um, th- this reminded me of um, I had the fags down. It has that energy of sure. like almost like a like a punk under like rhythm to it, like mm-hmm. in terms of the urgency and the speed. I mean, there's a couple songs in here that are pretty fast. Yeah. Um, this being one of them, uh, you know, big difference vocally. This is a lot, you know, more polished to sounding. There's harmonies, you know, I think the, <clears throat> the fags, the vocals a lot more <clears throat> like raw and, um, a little more broken here and there, but, um, definitely could see, you know, those two bands, uh, kind of came out at the same time or the, I guess horse came out around this time. Right. Um, so I, I could hear a lot of similarities between, um, the bands you mentioned and that band, there was sort of a, a little bit of a late nineties power pop thing trying to happen. Yeah. Um, so it seemed to happen in, in sort of conjunction with like pop punk and, you know, sort of in parallel, I think, uh, you know, you had like your Blink 182s and your and your pop punk bands happening in the mid to late 90s, um, but they weren't as hooky in the same way that this band is. And, and I think the track three illustrates that how different this band is when it comes to that. Like the bright side to me sounds like a classic sort of 70s in a lot of ways power pop song with the the du- the harmonies and the acoustic guitar and the the tempo that it's at it's just it's a v- very um throwback sounding uh power pop song did you guys get that feel from it yeah totally yeah i have a i have a comparison but i'm going to let brandon talk about this song first because i don't want to ruin it <laughs> okay <laughs> cuz once i say it you guys it, it might just it might derail the whole conversation <laughs> Well, I for that for me that song just sounded like like a love letter to Big Star. Like the guitar work, the mm-hmm. melodies, like everything in it just had like an Alex Chilton kind of vibe to me. Yes. Okay, Jay, derail us. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. <clears throat> I agree with that totally. I also think that um I heard another band that you guys are going to think I'm nuts. Enough's but, enough. Um <laughs> no, but close. But I think Ch- our friendship Midnight will probably back me up on this. There's a moment to this song that sound a lot like Warrant. Oh, wow. Like Warrant. Third record Warrant like when they're they're doing he's doing pop like mid-tempo ballady kind of stuff. It's very similar in terms of like Janie Lane's songwriting style. If you turn down if you tune down all of the bombast and presented it more like a power pop um, thing I think you see a lot of similarities between um, some of that stuff in this. Refresh my memory. What's the third warrant? Doggy dog. The doggy dog. Okay. I'll mm-hmm. have to go back and revisit that record. Even stuff off the second album too, which is Very filthy, pie. rotten. Is that one? That which one is that? Cherry pie. That was the first. Cherry, that's cherry pie. Dirty, rotten, filthy, stinking. I can't remember what's the name of the title though. The, there's similarities is. between the, the the vocal, honestly. I think that's probably the biggest thing, the vocal and the, and the melodies. Well, it's entirely possible. I mean, you know, these guys were, were not far off age-wise from, from us. So 
you know, if if they were in high school, they would have been listening. They could have been listening to Warrant, you know, circa 1992, 93 when they were in grade school. I mean, that's entirely possible. Well, I don't know that they were listening to Warrant, but I think they may have been listening to the same bands that Janie Lane listened to. And right. both, both interpreted it in their own ways. But when you break it down to just what the melodies are in the chords, right. uh, you know, get a, get away from the leather pants and the guitar solos and... <laughs> You know what I mean? The core of the songs are sometimes not as far off as we like to maybe think that they are. Interesting thought. <laughs> Track four, Pure Juice. Although the I think the intro is kind of a, uh, a psych out. It basically goes into the same aggressive power pop territory as, as Nowhere Near. It's a slightly different feel. Uh musically but it's again it's in that like two just over two minute range um i think it you start to get a feeling for this record is going to be sort of one song that's you know melodic but not up tempo and then there's going to be a song that's you know you're two two minute long up tempo and then there's going to be the you know you go from drawer to nowhere near and then bright side to pure juice you kind of are figuring out like the songwriting styles that are going on on this record. And I don't know enough about this band to know if, you know, there's two guys who are singing, two guys playing guitar. I don't know if they're both writing all the songs or if they're, if they're writing together or if they're writing separate and somebody's writing um, one song or some guy's writing the other. I'd have to look. I think Wikipedia has a breakdown of the writing credits, but I have to look at that up I don't want to do that right now. Um, so thoughts on, on the title track, Pure Juice. Jay, I'll start with you. Well, to me, this or Nowhere Near, I, I wish this would have, either of these two songs would have been the first single because it would have put them, on radio, they could have been very much comparable to what Green Day may have been doing at the time in terms of just the combination of hooks and sort of that up, super up tempo fun energy, mm-hmm. and a lot of the and the power, um, the pop punk stuff that that was coming out at that time and after, and I think it would have shown that side of the band and had, I think they would have made sense um, to to radio listeners at that time with either of these two songs, especially this one. It's like, you know, just a super hooky, fast, fun song, two minutes long. Right, you know that would just be great for radio, um, and it's also, you know, I think it highlights what they do that I think I enjoy the most, in that they have the the power pop elements, but they don't go overboard with the production, so it still has a raw, a rawness yeah. to it, a realness to it. Whereas, you know, I love Jellyfish, but you know, they're an example of. Maybe sometimes songwriting could be similar to this, but they go way overboard with the musicianship and the layering and production, and they become something completely almost not rock at times. Whereas this this band stays very much in that you know sort of rock space, but you know they <clears throat> they play really well and they've got the hooks. Um, the the last thing I'll say about this is this is the the kind of song I could hear like Ginger Wildheart writing. In hmm. the style of production, I wish that he would do. Like, I think this is feels very much like you know one of the more fun songs that he would do, minus all of the Metallica riffs and like <laughs> over compressed guitar crunchiness that he typically does. Um, so anyway, th- he came to mind when I listened to this as a something I'd wish he'd be, he'd be closer to. I did not expect you to bring Warrant and the Wild Hearts into this conversation. <laughs> it's all pop, man. Okay, I believe you. Brandon, thoughts on Pure Juice? Uh, yeah, this is the song that made me realize, you know, I, I think every song kind of draws a different influence. It's kind of like a, a hodgepodge of, of kind of their influences kind of on their sleeves. But this this song reminded me a lot of a band that you guys brought up a couple weeks ago, which is Ultimate Fake Book, which kind of does that same like really fast power pop, but on the punk side, which kind of sounds a little more like maybe the jam or someone like that, that has that kind of driving beat mm-hmm. maybe even the clash and if you go back far enough but uh yeah that's it sounds a lot like nowhere near like you guys said to me um and it would have been a great single in the states but i don't know what they chose to do why they chose drawer but 
Well, I think, you know, part of the reason why, maybe because in 97, uh, they didn't know what the hell to do. Uh, this is, 97 is by the time, it's about the time that pop music starts to make an impact again. And new metal is making an impact. And the traditional sort of, and, and electronica. So you have like, Alternative radio is a space that is corn and the Chemical Brothers and sort of third rate grunge of Godsmack. And, you know, I think it got it got a lot darker and heavier. And Drawer to me sounds like the less poppy of any of the songs on the on the record, whereas I think. You know, Jay brought up Green Day. I think that would have worked in like '94 and '95, but by the time you get to '97, like things got dark. You know, you had Limp Biscuit and Stabbing Westward, and you know those sorts of bands were all sort of all over the place. And straight up power pop. I don't think. Well, I don't think it's ever really made an impact on radio, but bands that had any sort of inkling towards pop in that direction probably are. You know, not going to be on the radio at that point. And I could see why, you know, I mentioned uh, in Japan, uh, Should I Walk Away ended up being a top 10 single. Like, that to me is like one huge long chorus, <laughs> that song. <laughs> All right. You made me do it. I pulled up 1997. Yeah. Rock songs. What is there it? There is some shocking shit here. <laughs> um. Sammy Hagar, Little White Lie. <laughs> Forgot about that. Yeah. Uh, the Offspring, Stone Temple Pilots, Lady Picture Show. Soundgarden was still like hanging around. Billions of singles. Wallflowers, That's this is their year, One Headlight. Is the new, so this is starting to get into the stuff I think you were just talking about. Yeah. Lots of Collective Souls is probably what their second or third record at this point it's probably be well what what collective soul would it be like december and uh precious declaration i don't know what that is listen i, I that's the third record oh well, yeah this is definitely a weird time aerosmith pink so this is like a mix of like classic rock stuff and a weird mix of newer things that are kind of all over the place yeah so should I walk away? Uh, would would this have been a single? Do you think in the in the mid nineties or? I still feel like this is almost so super poppy. It probably would have gone over people's heads. agree this is too light i mean yeah. i love the song but i don't think this could have worked then you think brandon i think the whole record kind of is a reflection of what you're saying I, I think you're right about the single but i think like hearing that list of those bands that were that were kind of on top at that time i think this record sounds too pretty for that i think it's yep. just a little too polished yeah this song is, is very uh lush and kind of got a how do you say it? I mean, I guess there's the word acoustics in here through most of it. Yeah, yeah. So it's um, it's definitely tuned back, turned, you know, tuned down a little bit. Not tuned down in terms of key, but just everything. It's not as amped up as some of the other material. Um, it's a little prettier. Yeah, and then that takes us into uh, Keep an Eye on You, track six, which is, I guess, the ballad? Is that Would it be fair to call it a ballad? Hmm. Yeah, I mean it's it pulls and pushes, right? I mean, there's parts yeah. where you're like, "Oh, this sounds like a ballad," and then it switches gears and gets heavier, and it's not a power ballad, and it kind of it's 
more mid tempo-y. It reminded me of uh of Mink. It's another band around this time, right? Power pop sort of local thing. But uh the way that they sort of approached um sort of mid tempo stuff, it had a lot of similarities to me. It um you're gonna think I'm nuts, but it kinda it, there were little bits and pieces where I was like it kind of sounds like Ario Speedwagon. <laughs> See? You got to be for warrant. <laughs> I mean, clearly they were influenced by, I guess you'd say, rock radio. And big hooks that you would hear on rock radio. Whether yeah. it's Cheap Trick or, you know. And then and then dug deeper than that. Like, that's that's what I kind of imagine is that these were guys who, you know... Clearly listen to the radio, listen to the big hits rock songs, and then went and discovered everything that was going on that wasn't, but was still super hooky and poppy. So, you know, it's not like, you know, Big Star didn't make a radio impact, but it can definitely hear Big Star like Brandon mentioned. But I can also hear Ario Speedwagon, and I guess I can hear Warren. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. These all these bands listened to probably most of the same bands growing up. Um, mm-hmm. They all just interpreted different ways. But uh, this really, I think, this song shows their, their ability to understand dynamics. You know, there's just a every every part of the song you can tell. You know, they they've scrutinized and um, pushes and pulls and slows down and speeds up and they I find it interesting how they use harmonies it's not always what you would expect and they don't overdo it mm-hmm. um, which it was kind of funny um, I think Drawer is one of the only songs that doesn't have any um, yeah which, which you would think if it's your your big single would be you know soaking in harmonies but it's not um, it's interesting when you listen to the record just for the harmony bits to hear when they choose to do it, when they don't choose to do it. It's it's not always what you'd expect. Yeah, and again, I think that was conscious of not trying to play like give away their hand that they were so poppy on so much of the record. Mm-hmm. I think they were trying to play that down with that single. Because it wasn't going to sell at that point. So... Brandon, thoughts on Keep an Eye on You? Um, I actually have in my notes that it reminded me of Weezer a little bit. Maybe it's the tempo. Um, and yeah. maybe just that kind of like, like blue album, Weezer, which is yeah. essentially a power pop record too. Like the second half of that record, like Only in Dreams and sure. and, and that kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I can hear that, definitely. Um, And then, like I said, this record kind of bounces between like those sorts of songs and then right back into another two minute long you know up tempo uh track with play it by ear does anybody else hear like rembrandt's here like <laughs> in that harmony on the, the play it by ear line uh yeah i guess uh, it's just something about the feel of this song i could just see that being used in the opening of friends this is it, and, and, and these kind of bands are, are for me sometimes. That's uh, there's a there's a sweetness or sort of a I want to say there's some sort of line they cross. I don't know how to define it. I don't know if it's like generic or, or something where you go from being really compelling and you know able to um, do a lot of interesting things in terms of you know meshing pop with minor note keys and you know, edgy guitars and all this stuff. And then there's a song like maybe this, and there's a couple others coming up here where it sort of crosses some line into just being a little too vanilla. Maybe. I don't know. Am I off? I don't think so. No, I, I I can hear what you're saying. Like it becomes like you think a, a a studio band wrote it for, like you said, for like a theme song or something like that. Like, you know, it becomes too saccharine and too like. I think when he, when the guitars get dialed down just a little too much, and get a little, jang- get a little jangly, it gets a little jangly. Yeah, and you're like, mm, this becomes this is getting a little too 
Um, Jim Blossom was another one that popped in my head. This would be like the best Jim Blossom song ever, but just in terms of like the <laughs> jangly uh, <laughs> feel of it. I don't know. Hey, Misery is a pretty good song. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it's not uh, it's not completely shit on uh, on Jim Blossoms. I took some heat for my 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 candle box ripping, and then uh, really? we had that we had the uh, audacity then to talk to somebody from yeah i i own a couple jim blossom records you should only own one i'm on the second record too actually i know you guys don't don't agree with me on that one i've heard you go off about it a little bit yeah um, that that causes me physical anger that record (laughs) some of some of these bands like i i liked them at the time and I guess I just use them as examples of because I can't come up with a better example. <laughs> and so, you know, with Candlebox, it was the case. Like when I actually went back and listened, I was like, "Oh, okay." The first record is actually sounds like, like I, you know, I think this works. I, I mean, I, it kind of holds up. And the second one, you can t- I definitely tell it doesn't. So, with a little perspective, maybe I can. I shouldn't write off the Jim Blossoms. Maybe I'll end up liking them <laughs> better than I remember. Quote of the year. I shouldn't write off the Jim Blossoms. (laughs) Um, Are we are we wrong on this, Brandon, about play it by ear, sort of dialing it down a little bit and not being quite as interesting as some of the earlier up tempo stuff? No, I agree with you. I think that um, I think this is the song. I can't remember if it was this one or it was right in the middle. Um, it, it had to have been this one because before it is keep an eye on you, which I really like. And after it's 99, which I really like. So, but I remember that this sounded when it all came together to me, like it was missing something, almost like a demo, like when it all, maybe the guitars were just too low or, but the mix just sounded like it was just missing something to me and it was just, didn't do it. Well, my, my last note on this song is missing a killer chorus. <laughs> maybe <laughs> that's what it's missing. <laughs> uh, hmm. I, I felt this was a great example of the verse is much better than the chorus. Hmm. Interesting. Because the power pop band usually is not missing a chorus. So there's a crack in the uh, in the armor there. When, when the chorus happens, you're like, oh, this is the pre-chorus. Here we go. Nope, that was it. Right. <laughs> Back to the verse. You're like, ah, oh, shit. Because uh, it goes to halftime, and you're like, oh, this is going to be a cool build-up to a great chorus, and it doesn't. It just goes back. Yeah. Track 8, which is titled 99, which is confusing. I don't know why you would make track 9, 99, but whatever. Um, this is another 6-8 song, and um, this is another one where uh, it's a little bit it's a it's a little grungier, I guess you'd mm. say for for them. Um, it also features which uh, something that I can only describe as a perfect mimicking of Billy Corgan's guitar tone. Yeah, oh, totally. totally. Yeah. What is that effect? Is he is it an octave effect on the lead or on the solo? He definitely has an octave on the solo, but I mean, even the rhythm tone sounds like Billy Corgan. Right, you know, I think it's, he's it's the whole the same pedals and everything. Like he's going, like it's it sounds like someone trying to sound like the Smashing Pumpkins for the whole song. To your comment about it being grungy, I don't remember the band Seed we reviewed a couple seasons ago, but it mm-hmm. was uh, it was like an early '90s band that tried. I think they'd have been one of the first to try to do the power pop thing, but they did it very grungy. It was very much like this: um, a lot of halftime, six-eight stuff, and heavy guitars, but like super syrupy vocals. Right. I actually liked when he pushed his vocals to the breaking point within the chorus of these songs 
because he's he's kept it pretty in control. Mm. Um, so I I like, and I think it's Tim Cullen who's singing this song because he's credited as the writer on the hears and mirrors on the chorus. You're talking about beers. Like, he does like yeah, it goes up really high and his voice breaks. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I like hearing people push their vocal to the edge and then maybe a little bit over that especially in this genre yeah yeah i mean you want you got you that's what i'm saying you gotta have some stuff where things get a little ugly you know either you vote that's why i think horse and the fags are so brilliant it's because he you know his vocal brings that you know and it brings that no matter how syrupy and poppy the melodies get like because it's got that super rough vocal on it, it all makes sense. And some bands do it with like guitar tones or production or what you got to have some element that's not pretty. Right. I got, I didn't really pick up. I, I should have, but I didn't pick up that the the verse guitars were quite as pumpkins influenced as maybe they are. Because uh, then it's it puts a different light, I guess, on the whole song in general. Oh yeah, yeah. But it's, once you get to the solo, you're like, whoa, wait a minute. And then you start to go back and analyze the whole thing. And you're like, wow, he's doing Billy Corgan the whole song. Well, especially it's like the last two notes of the solo. Like they sound like they're off of like Siamese Dream. I mean, they are. Yeah, totally. And uh, I don't know. I don't I exactly know what that if I'm assuming he's an octaver or something like that. But yeah, it's a combination of an octave and a fuzz and probably something else. Definitely an octave in there. I mean, it sounds badass. I mean, <laughs> right? Oh, I it's, totally want to try to get that <laughs> that sound. Like, it's a cool guitar solo too. It's just, yeah, can't help but notice the similarity. Yeah, I'll be playing that clip uh, during the uh, <laughs> during this portion. Um, on her mind, I believe. This was the song. Let me go back and double check the notes. I believe this was the song that went uh, to Buffy the Vampire Slayer. No, this was the basketball song. Okay. So I don't know how they worked this into the movie, or if it was, you know, soundtrack inspired by. I. You know what I imagine this? This was a. I'm gonna. I'm gonna take a wild guess. This was a montage song. When one of the characters was trying to win over Jenny McCarthy's character, and he was doing a bunch of like stupid, endearing things, like trying to win her over, that's that's my guess. Putting his basketballs in his pants to look like balls. Yeah, exactly. Like that type of humor, but trying to be endearing. Right. Yeah. This song. Uh, I, I guess that makes sense to me. This is probably the most generic sounding song on the record. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. Yeah, this could have been any band in the '90s that had a tinge of power pop, like even like the the verse or not the verse, but the the chorus like lyrics are just generic. There's not quite much no going on. I don't think that's any in it. Record really has a whole lot. Like, I think that's kind of a power pop symptom, though. I, I don't think there's really any like deep lyrics going on here. There's just a couple of taglines here and there that are really, really good taglines that make you remember them. And that's about it. Well, and I think they're also really good at in, in the especially the first half of the record of when they do the harmonies of not just harmonizing, but also doing interesting runs with the notes in in what they're doing twisting things with like weird minors and and stuff there's there's some complexity to the vocal um which is what really good power pop has and right. this this song doesn't necessarily have that you know this i could have heard this could be like a you know a blink 182 ripoff band sort of thing yeah yeah i was yeah i was going to that place in my head when i was hearing this i was like wow this sounds like either them or a lot of the bands that came from them just the the thing that that's a little different is like the musicianship is so much better than most of those bands for example the drums on this song are actually really good like 
he's doing like this shuffle kind of thing, even though it's like a punk feel. Mm-hmm. And then he's able to just roll into these super fast fills. And if nothing else, this song sort of highlights how good the drummer is in this band. Um, but yeah, it, uh, at the core of it, the performance aside, this could very well be one one of those billion or so bands that came out after Blink-182. Yeah, I, there was. I think the one thing that we, you know, maybe you guys agree, but um, the first half of this record, I think, in terms of originality, just in terms of vocals and and melodies, stands a bit stronger than the second half of this record, and it's probably a lot to do with the CD format and the number of songs that they were able to place, which is something that Steve brought up in the comments about this being about two or three songs too long. This, on her mind could easily have just been a B-side for this record. Yeah. So let's feel go like, to... Okay, I feel like... Uh, we have to go back and do the research. I feel like a common criticism we have is that uh, a lot of records are front-heavy mm-hmm. from the 90s, like... The, they, everybody took their best material and crammed it in the first, you know, six, six to eight tracks, and then after that, it's very hit and miss. Um, track ten, mountain size. This is a bit different feeling song than a lot of the record in terms of it doesn't fall into that like you know typical power pop sound we've been hearing, and then. It's not in that 6-8 swing thing that they used a couple times. It's not a ballad. It's kind of got its own sort of groove going on. Um, what did you guys think of Mountain Size? Brandon, I'll start with you. Um, I thought the riff, the intro riff is actually kind of kind of cool, but it just feels so out of place on this record to me that it's really hard to attach anything to it. It, it feels like a throwaway track to me. Yeah, I wanted to like it more than I do. Uh, <laughs> uh, I like the riff. I, I, in a way, I kind of like the band going in a direction like this, but there's something about the way it fits with the material around it that just totally throws me off. I mean, it's a it's a it's a heavy, almost like a metalish riff. Um, yeah, and, and it, parts of it, I think the towards the end of the song, it, it becomes. Um, it almost goes into like a deep purple kind of feeling song. Um, so it's, it's very different. Um, I wish they could, I don't know, maybe if there was less songs and they put it in the right spot, it could have made it work, but there's something about it in the context of this record that, uh, it's, I think I'm with Brandon. It's a bit of a throwaway, even though I think it's, it has more character than something like on her mind. It's just not quite right for this record. Okay, interesting. So then let's go to Two Shades of Grey, which is the track uh, 11. When you mentioned the Wild Hearts, Jay, um, this is another song that I was like, oh, you know what? This could be, this has that like feel in some ways. Or do you agree with that? You know who this is? Hmm. Foo Fighters. Yeah, I heard that too. Ah, <laughs> uh, it's missing the Dave Grohl scream, you know, where he'll kind of take it to that extra limit. But man, this sounds a lot like a Foo Fighter song. I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, you're right. Sound, yeah, it kind of has a. Uh, it kind of has a first album, Foo Fighters feel. Almost sounds like uh, what's the first 
Is it This Is A Call? Yeah. That's the first it album. Sounds like that song. Part, I mean, the melody, I could hear that melody being sang over this um, intro part. Hmm. That's, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm on board with you now. <laughs> I, hear what you, <laughs> I hear what you're saying. Huh. Interesting. Again, a different place for this band. You know, I don't think, would we, would we, would, sorry, would we describe Foo Fighters as power pop? Uh, kind of. I mean, Dave Grohl is one of those guys that claims that he's, you know, kind of a student of classic rock. And I think power pop and classic rock are really close cousins. Yeah. So, I mean, especially in early Foo Fighters, like, which I'm not a giant Foo Fighters fan. I like them just fine. But, Mm -hmm. I mean, I could see that that's kind of his interpretation of power pop, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess I I always thought of them as coded in a little bit of a little a little bit heavier um guitar sound than your normal power pop um band you know i I still think that there's there's just always like a slight bit of jangle to power pop whereas there's no jangle in any foo fighters song that i can think of maybe big me would be, would be like that's, the closest. That's pretty jangly, yeah. right? But they never approached that again. Yeah. That, yeah that, well, they've gone. I mean, the last couple of years, probably last almost decade, they've been almost like a prog rock band. Like their songs get pretty epic and all over the place. So, and then for a while, it seemed like they all they did was like ballads. So, I, I definitely think that '90s, at least the first couple records, you know, a song like this could could have been on. Either of those two records. Oh, yeah. So we're going to go to track 12, and that's With Your Blessing. This moves into the, uh, I, I think, the more familiar sound of the power pop up-tempo um, songs that are on this record. Uh, is it more in the Nowhere Near and um, Pure Juice side, or is it on the... Uh, on her mind and the more generic end of the band. Jay, what do you think? Uh, no, I think this is, this belongs in the front half of the record. <laughs> uh, if we're segregating things, I, this is, uh, the best song on the, on the second half. Um, maybe, the, maybe my favorite song on the record. Uh, it just has oh. a little bit, has a little bit of everything, you know, it gets quiet and pretty for moments. It gets aggressive. The chorus is, uh, pretty rocking. Um, do some cool dynamic stuff like they bring in a fuzzy guitar for the chorus it just gives it that extra kick in the ass um, just a lot of cool dynamics yeah I like this song quite a bit but again I think this could have been a much more viable single than, than what they chose Brandon is this front half worthy? <laughs> um, I agree I think it's the best song in the second half It could have. it easily could have fit in in the front half um, what I really liked about it was that that fuzzy guitar that Jay was just talking about. You get a lot of that in the tracks before that in Mountain Size and Two Shades of Grey. But those songs really don't do a whole lot for me. But the guitar tones, like they kind of fuzz it out a little. It kind of has almost like an early Kiss kind of guitar sound. Like that kind of like like in the mix, like really hot in the mix kind of sound. Mm. Um, and, and I was glad to see it on this song where it actually could do some kind of, some time, kind of good. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, you know, I thought the song was great. I, to me, this should have been the end of the record. Oh yeah, been been a nice way to end it. Yeah, and then we have one more song, which we say a lot when it comes to '90s albums. There's always <laughs> one more song. Lucky um, thirteen. Because you you have to end on a slower song, which for this band, a slower song is more mid tempo than ballady. Or you'd have to do like a 13-minute-long sax solo weird freak-out song. That's the other thing that you know 90s bands like to do is the weird ending track. But uh, this one is a, um, it's, it's you know mid-tempo, not in the ballad territory that uh, um, "Keep an Eye on You" is. 
probably is more of a B-side. Agree or disagree? You mean by B, do you mean Beatles? <laughs> <laughs> to me, this felt like them doing their, you know, something close to a Beatles type songwriting and to the point where the verse feels like Oasis Brit Poppy. Um, which is interesting. I mean, I think going back to one of the original comments uh, prior to this episode about what is what is power pop, I think we should probably do a roundtable on. Uh, oh, yeah. I always thought of it as being, you know, pretty much some some lineage to the Beatles. Like there's some tie there or to be power pop. That is a core part of where the band is coming from. Right. But the more I've learned about it, I don't think that's necessarily the case all the time. Um, but the two definitely cross paths, you know, quite a bit. And for me, this felt like, okay, yeah, these guys are big Beatles fans. Um, so it's okay. It's just not the most original tune on the record. Brandon, thoughts on the final track? Um, well, there's a lot of tracks on the record like that. Well, maybe not a lot, but there there are several tracks like this. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. It's not bad, but in this grand scheme of 13 songs, it, does it really need to be there? You know? Right. The answer is probably no. It probably this this could be a really really solid nine or ten song record, and then have a couple of B sides or do an EP or something like that. Um, which is kind of tipping my hand when we get to our final rating on the record. Were the album, would it be a better EP or would it just be a decent single? Uh, I think I kind of tipped my hand there. I, I think there are probably eight or nine really solid tracks that could make up a record. So I think it's it's a worthy album in that respect. But I think that there are easily three to four songs you could cut off the album. Brandon, our suggester, where do you uh, lie on the scale? Uh, I'm pretty much in the same boat. Uh, although you need to consider these songs are so short mm-hmm. that if you took three or four of these songs off, that's essentially an EP. That's about 20 minutes. So <laughs> in, in in that kind of framing, it might actually be an EP. But I, I think it's a great record all around. I I'll, It's just such a product of the 90s by having 13 tracks and front-loaded and not released on vinyl, which is a huge bummer to me. Um, I, I guess I would say that, that the full album that I'm, I'm behind here, I think, same with you, take maybe three tracks out and then it's good. Jay? Uh, yeah, if this was released in the 70s, <laughs> uh, it would have been nine or ten. Well, no, it probably would have been, say, 11. Um I think you would have got things just trimmed up a little bit more uh, overall, and I think it'd be killer. You know, the the two big star records are 37 minutes. Um, you know, I think getting this record somewhere in that ballpark would be would be great. And uh, yeah, definitely better than EP. Yeah, I've always wondered: is an EP about length or number of tracks? Is there like a hard rule on what actually makes an EP an EP? Did we know? I have no idea. Is sure, it goes back to um, what could fit on a uh, whatever size record it was originally put on, right? Right. Then a, a 12 inch at 45 speed instead of 33, right? Because EP stands for extended play. Right. So it's really just a maxi single, mm-hmm. which I think would have been a 12 inch record, but they just put it at the 45 speed just like a single, you know? Mm hmm. I mean, don't quote me on that. I'm not positive, but that seems to make sense to me. Do you know what the length of time that is? Oh, boy. I used to, uh, but I haven't had to look that stuff up for a band that I was in in a long, long time. Um, I know (laughs) that for a 7-inch at 33, it is, I want to say the most that you can put on the side is like 8 minutes. Man, it's been so long, I can't remember. Um and if, if you're doing a 12-inch at 45, that's probably close to the same as 7-inch and 33, I would think. So, um, so I mean, really, that would mean that you, you could get, like, 15 to 20 minutes out of it. Uh, 
It's too, according to Wikipedia, it's too long for a single, but not long enough to be an LP. Right. Uh, originally referred to specific types of vinyl records other than 78 RPM LP. I'm going to look for some defining characteristic here. Seven inch 45 RPM singles had a maximum playing time of about four minutes per side. So we don't know. I don't think there is a hard and fast. Damn it. <laughs> We'd have to have a round table on that to determine. It seems like as the as records changed, the you know, the way that EPs were done changed. You know what I mean? Like in terms of you gotta put on different formats of records. Speed size, that sort of thing. Yeah, CD sort of ruined all that because you don't have to worry about speed and sides and all that nonsense. So, all right, well, we have three worthy albums, but with some trimming, uh, which is often the case with albums that we enjoy. And um, I doubt that this is going to get reissued on vinyl. <laughs> at any point so you're gonna have to go to discogs and uh or some other online retailer and try to pick it up on cd if you uh yeah go ahead if you like what you heard i have a little bit of trivia okay there's such a thing as a double ep i was unaware of this what and the most well-known double ep is the beatles magical mr tour it was released as a double seven inch ep in the United Kingdom. Why isn't that just an album? I don't know. That's obnoxious. <laughs> <laughs> I understand a double album, but a double EP is just an album. I don't understand that. It's just, it's like we're, we're releasing four singles at the same time. Why don't you just release an EP? Because they're four singles all at the same time. On separate discs. On separate discs. <laughs> With a B side for each. <laughs> we're releasing 10 b-sides no a-sides these are all b-sides uh brandon thank you for suggesting this record sure thanks for having me absolutely and um to check out uh braided veins where should people go to to purchase the record uh, we do have a Bandcamp site. We also have a merch site on, I think, Big Cartel, which you can get links to all of that on our Facebook page. So that's the kind of the central location for us there is Braided Veins on Facebook. Excellent. And for people out there who would like to suggest a record, you can go to digmeoutpodcast.com and go to the request review page for 2016. You can do it that way through PayPal. If you want to suggest a record for 2017, like some folks have, you go to our Patreon page, you pledge $250 a month, and after 12 months, you get to pick your record. That way you spread it out. It's a little little less painful for you instead of dropping the, the, the large amount at once. Or you can go with the dollar and just support the podcast to get the bonus and uh, backstage access and become, a, as Jay likes to call it, uh, a member of our board of directors, which could, could get really out of control for a lot of more people. <laughs> I think the best part about the uh, Patreon site now is just uh, you and me trolling each other. Yeah. Basically, I put something up and Jay goes, that sucks. <laughs> you you F that why up. Didn't, why don't you do it this way? Yeah, why don't you do it? Why don't you do this? Yeah. You want to like, see me and Tim Bicker? Yeah. Stuff that we would normally reserve for email or text messages is now for everybody to see. It's like, hey, man, reality TV, right? Exactly. Exactly. All right. And I want to remind everybody, if you like what you heard, you can leave us positive feedback over at iTunes. Um, Comments at Facebook, Twitter, digmeoutpodcast.com, all those sorts of things. And you can follow us at Instagram. I do post... Uh, some stuff on Instagram for records and when various things uh, come up that require an image, some sort of a visual component that will be posted there. Uh, For Jay and Brandon, I'm Tim. We're out. 
we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Thanks for listening. You can support the podcast by becoming a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com backslash dig me out or requesting a review for the 2016 season at our request a review page at digmeoutpodcast.com. Oh,